0: Hello. Welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership podcast, the world's largest weekly podcast dedicated to the topic of leadership, all things leadership. This is, can you believe it, our 200th episode. Nearly four years ago, we launched this podcast with some of our own internal thought leaders, Stephen M. R. Covey, Liz Wiseman, Chris McChesney. It's gone on to become the world's most impactful and weekly viewed leadership podcast. Globally, we're honored to be bringing you today a phenomenal guest, Dr. Deepak Chopra, who I'll introduce in just a few moments. If you've been following us for the last Several months, you know that as the host, I was privileged to write a book for HarperCollins Leadership titled Master Mentors, 30 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds, where I took some of the insights from our 30 most interesting guests of the first year, wrote a book about it, became a bestseller, and now I've just finished Master Mentors Volume 2 with 30 new guests, master mentors, and 30 new transformational insights out in October. And I'm on to the third volume, where perhaps Dr. Schoper will agree to be featured in the book as well. You know him, of course, as a household name. He is by training. An endocrinologist has now authored his 91st book, with three more in the works. His book that we're talking about today is called Abundance, The Inner Path to Wealth. We'll tie this to all things leadership Dr. Chopra, welcome today from New York City to On Leadership.
1: Thank you. Let's talk about leadership and we can talk about abundance in the context of leadership.
0: I would love to do just that. Before we begin, Dr. Chopra, again, you are a household name. People have read your books. They've listened to your podcast and television programs. They're aware probably peripherally of your uh, experience and passion. Would you maybe take a few moments and just reorient everyone who is watching and listening to your path as a medical doctor, how you've become, of course, a world-renowned influencer, coach, inspirer on all things related to our health, our mental, social, emotional, and physical health. Talk a bit about your journey, and then we'll get into the topic of leadership and abundance.
1: My training is in medicine, internal medicine, endocrinology, and neuroscience, neuroendocrinology. And I was uh, lucky enough to train with some of the pioneers in what today would be called mind-body medicine. But at that time, basic science was what led to it. And basic science was the study of neurochemicals, they're called neuropeptides. And we soon realized, and this was in the 1970s, that these neuropeptides, which have become kind of a household name now, uh, serotonin, dopamine, oxytocin, anandamide opiates, we realized that these were molecules of emotion and there was therefore the connection of what was happening in consciousness, mind, and body. And that led me then to look at clinical studies where people were able to influence outcomes of disease through practices like meditation, mindfulness, um, and basically healing practices that have been part of wisdom traditions all across the world.
0: One thing led to another, and here I am. And here you are today on Leadership. We're honored to be featuring you as our 200th episode. Dr. Chopra, you were friends with Dr. Covey. You knew our co-founder, of course, the author of the incomparable book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, where we've now built what is the world's largest leadership firm and most trusted firm. When I talk about leadership to you in the context of 20 22. What thoughts come to mind and what perhaps inspirational uh, yearnings do you have around all of us and our own leadership capability?
1: So, you know, as you know, being in this field, there are many kinds of schools on leadership. There's thought leadership, there's um, what we call servant leadership, there's the spider model, there's the distribution model. I created my own model, which was the soul of leadership. And the soul of leadership has to do with how do you unfold the greatness and infinite potential in those who want to be leaders, those who aspire to be leaders. And I believe ultimately that's almost everyone. You're a leader in your family. You can be a leader in your community. You can be a leader in politics and business. But if you come from the level of the soul, um, which is a deeper awareness than both body and mind, then you have something which I call the soul of leadership. In fact, I wrote a book about that also. I've uh, taught leadership at uh, Kellogg Kellogg Management School. I've taught it at Harvard, at uh, uh, Columbia, and other institutions and i've taught the soul of leadership in many corporate settings as well
0: deepak in this book abundance you talk a lot about job satisfaction and career satisfaction of course post-pandemic whether we call it the great resignation or the great reevaluation or the great comeuppance whatever it is you talk about certain aspects that every leader should be aware of as to how people determine their job satisfaction in fact surprisingly you talked about which careers report the most and highest satisfaction in which report the lowest. Talk about that and then I'll skip to some of the aspects of what it means to create what you call a satisfying work condition.
1: So um, the most satisfying careers appear to be either clergy, surprisingly,
0: clergy. or CEOs. And why was that, do you think, from your research?
1: I think there's a sense of fulfillment um, in the, both these areas. CEOs, CEOs, either for-profit or non-profit, get a lot of fulfillment with outcomes. And clergy get a lot of fulfillment from bringing, bringing people peace and consolation.
0: If I'm not mistaken, I think a chiropractor was number three, firefighter was number six, and, and then on down the line. And in the book, you talk about a variety of keys that contribute to job satisfaction. I'm going to list them, and you can maybe riff on the top two or three you think leaders should know about. Money, you mentioned number one, but only up to a certain point. Low stress, job security, good relationships with coworkers, a sense of being heard, loyalty and support from higher-ups, the chance to care for others, opportunity for advancement, positive company culture, challenging daily tasks, and then finally being good at your job. Would you expand on some of those that you think are the most important that leaders of teams keep in mind to create the conditions where people can actually have satisfying work culture?
1: So based on all what you read, the entire list, I think the most important, uh, which would include all of them, and it's not really mentioned here is relevance, purpose, and meaning. So let me give you a little bit of data on that. If in a in a business environment, uh, the leader uh, ignores one of the employees, the rate of disengagement goes up by 44%, 45%. If they actually criticize their employee, then uh, it drops to about 20%. A person would rather be criticized than ignored because being ignored means you don't exist. You're not relevant. But if you notice a single strength, a single strength, uh, authentic strength, and you actually notice it and share it with your employee, the rate of disengagement falls to less than 1%. And this, this, just this very statistic... Um, We have about $200 billion of uh, revenue lost either to disengaged workers or those that could be called actively disengaged. Actively disengaged means they come to work not only unhappy, but with the desire to make other people unhappy. You know, misery loves company, just like uh, happiness loves company. So here's the key in a leadership environment, uh, in ecosystem, you have shared vision, and those are that's because I mentioned all those qualities, shared vision. You have everyone complementing each other's strengths, as in a sports team. And you have uh, what we call emotional and spiritual bonding. If you have these three components, you're going to have a very successful leadership and a successful organization. And you also have maximum diversity. Maximum diversity means... Not only of talent, but education, but also ethnic diversity, racial diversity, gender diversity. That makes a perfect team uh, in a leadership environment. And the factors I mentioned are part of that.
0: Deepak, I'd like to pivot for a moment. We'll come back to this aspect of leadership and engagement with the soul Would you define some terms for us? Uh, uh, For us, yoga neophytes, you obviously have a a much more sophisticated understanding of it. Yoga means one thing in the Western world in the United States and perhaps something very different in the Eastern world and many interpretations. Would you take some time and talk about the power of understanding yoga and that term in its fullest application and why that's important to living a life of abundance?
1: So the word yoga is actually derived from the Sanskrit root yuj. And yuj means um, union with your fundamental state of awareness, free of the conditioned mind. And it's also related to the English word yoke. In uh, Christian theology, especially in uh, the words of Jesus, uh, when he says, uh, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, He's actually expressing yoga connected to the source. Of course, he couches it in the divine and with the word God. I'm connected to God. You are connected to God. We are all connected to God. But by God, we mean the source of all existence and the source of all experience. In yoga, there are eight basic uh, s- steps or methodologies. The first two are called yama and niyama. Yama is rules of social engagement, and niyama are rules of personal intelligence or emotional intelligence. The yamas include non-violence, truth, um, non-covetousness, the right use of sexual energy, and non-grasping and non-clinging. The niyamas, which are personal engagements, are mental and physical cleanliness, contentment, discipline, and uh, self-study, and ultimately surrender to the divine. So those are the first two limbs of yoga. The third limb is what people go to yoga uh, practice for, you know, the physical postures. But even the physical postures are seats of awareness. So every physical posture expands your awareness from ego to what we call um, your, your ultimate self. You're not sacrificing yourself for yourself. So that would be the physical practice, which are called asanas, that people go to studios for. The next is breath a discipline where you can regulate your body through practices called controlled breathing or pranayama. The next is pratyahara, which means going within and learning about your body and being able to control it, you know, heart rate, blood pressure, etc. The aspect of autonomic nervous system. Once you get these, the last three are dharana, focused attention, dhyan, meditation and Samadhi transcendence. That's the full experience of yoga.
0: I mean, it's a much more broad understanding than the average capitalist or American or who name it, right? Professional thinks about in terms of yoga, going to a studio. It's a lifestyle. It's a way of thinking. It's a connectedness. You mentioned the power, if you will, of meditation. For someone like me that has a peripheral understanding of yoga, now broader and meditation, but isn't practicing it on even an irregular basis. What advice would you give to leaders, to parents, to colleagues about how to get started with meditation? What should we expect? What are some things we should know about that? And how can that build both our leadership capability, but also flourish in us a sense of abundance? Okay, so meditation is going beyond conditioned
1: mind as soon as we are born we are actually conditioned to by things like economics, ancestral history, uh, culture, religion and that puts us in a box and that box limits our potential to express our what I would call greatness and therefore the first practice that meditation is about is very simple uh, take a few minutes, even 10 minutes, close your eyes and do absolutely nothing. You know, a great philosopher once said all of humanity's uh, problems come from um, human beings' inability to sit quietly in a room and do nothing. After all, we are human beings, but we end up being human doings. So, take, you know, it's all right to be a human doing, but occasionally be a human being as well. I like to phrase that in Frank Sinatra's uh, famous uh, song "Do Be Do Be Do," alternate being with doing, and so that's the first thing. Mm-hmm. The second thing is you could just simply observe your breath. Observing your breath leads to very amazing insights. It decreases mental chatter, but also you realize that breath is a sensation that arises, is experienced, and subsides spontaneously. There's no effort to breathe. That's how your body is right now. You're not, there's no effort regulating your blood pressure, your uh, heart rate, your immune system, your endocrine system. So allow your inner intelligence to wake up just by observing breath. And also you would notice that if you hold on to your breath, you will suffocate. That's true of any experience. If you try to hold on to it, you will suffocate because experience is transient, ephemeral, and impermanent. Once you go to beyond these stages, there's self-inquiry. Self-inquiry uh, means uh, who am I, what do I want, what is my purpose, uh, what am I grateful for? Fundamental questions that allow you to know a little bit about yourself. And you're asking questions about yourself, nobody else. And you wait for responses through either a sensation, image, feeling, or thought. Then there are advanced degrees of meditation, which are mindfulness of thought, mindfulness of emotion, mindfulness of relationship, mindfulness of mental space, mindfulness of the physical body, mindfulness of the ecosystem, and mindfulness of the universe and ultimately awareness of the self, what we call self-awareness, awareness of awareness. These are very advanced practices, but even the beginning stages of meditation are very joyful and very fulfilling.
0: Deepak, you are a medical doctor by education and training endocrinologist, and since that early aspect of your career. Of course, you've written 90 plus books and have spoken and uh, and, uh, meditated extensively. You've put a lot of thought and uh, practice into the connection between our mindfulness and our gratitude, our abundance, and our physical and mental health. What would you like for all of us to know about the connection between our anxiety, our depression, our mental health, the way our body works or doesn't work properly, and how we move between, as you call it, a state of doing and a state of being. What are, the, what are some of the insights you'd like to shock us all into remembering today so that our lives become better, calmer, congruent, that we're better leaders, better parents? Tell us what you know that you want us to know. So very simply, if you feel disconnected with life, and life, I mean
1: all of life. You know, if you feel disconnected, then you experience uh, what we call the separate self in Eastern wisdom traditions. The fact is, the separate self is a socially induced hallucination. But if you experience it, then what happens is you feel angry. And anger can lead to hostility, which means the desire to seek vengeance or revenge or hurt somebody. The memory of trauma, which is called anger, can also lead to fear, which is the anticipation of trauma in the future. Fear can also lead to guilt because, you know, there are religions built on guilt. You blame yourself and then you go for confession. Guilt can lead to shame and humiliation. And ultimately, the combination of all of the above leads to depression. And as we look at chronic disease, we see that all these mental states are linked with inflammation in the body and also linked with chronic disease, only 5% of disease-related gene mutations are fully penetrant. The others depend on lifestyle. Uh, On the other hand, if you feel connected with the world, connected with life, which is we are, we are part of a, uh, we are entangled with everyone. You know, look at what's happening in Russia, it's affecting everything, the world economy, you and me, our emotional state, and everything else, okay? So the fact is, we are inseparably entangled with uh, everything that's happening in the world. Today, it's even more obvious. When you feel that sense of connection at a deep level in your heart, in your being, then you experience empathy. Empathy means you feel what others feel. Empathy leads to compassion, which is the desire to alleviate suffering, And that leads to love, and love leads to love and action, which in my tradition is called karma yoga. And uh, karma yoga, love and action, leads to joy and equanimity. So those are two very opposing states. And ultimately, it's our self-awareness that determines what we are experiencing. And everything we are experiencing is recorded in the brain. What's recorded in the brain is recorded in the body and what's recorded in the body expresses itself as our thought, as our speech, and our behavior in the
0: world. Thank you, Deepak. I'm going to ask you a couple of broad questions, and I give you license to answer them however you'd like. If there was a common human mindset that you thought was ineffective, and you wished billions of people could change their mind about something, and it would bring to them abundance and joy and gratitude and congruence. What's what's an all-encompassing mindset you'd like to change or correct in people? Move from fear to love, that's it. Expand on that, please. Well, fear
1: is being disconnected and love is the bond that helps heal. Love is not just a sentiment or an emotion. Love is the ultimate truth at the heart of creation that we are inseparable and we are differentiated from one source, call it God, call it the source, call it consciousness, it doesn't matter. Differentiation is not separation. Just like one stem cell or one, you know, when you were, uh, when you were conceived, you were a single fertilized egg. That egg divided 50 times to create 60 trillion cells, which makes a human baby, which is more than all the stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Now, all these cells look different. Liver cells, kidney cells, stomach cells, heart cells, brain cells. But they're actually the same cell in their origin, performing different things and helping each other. So I would say just be like the cells of your body.
0: What's a misconception you think people have? A warped maybe mindset about money, wealth, that, you know, that uh, money brings you joy. That poverty doesn't. Talk about that, and what your your book is about money about money and how to bring wealth to your life through abundance. What's a mindset you'd like people to reconsider around? Okay, wealth? the mindset is two things that I would like people to shift from. One is that making
1: a lot of money is not spiritual. That you know, if people actually take vows of poverty in order to join the priesthood. And if somebody is talking spirituality or self-awareness, which is my definition of spirituality, then they should feel guilty about bani. Now, in my tradition, the four goals of life are actually dharma, artha, kama, moksha. So dharma is following your purpose, following your bliss. Kama is sensual delight through the five senses. uh, uh, Sight, sound, taste, smell, and touch. And when we are mindful that every sensory experience is joyful, that's called karma, not karma, karma, k a m a, as in Kama Sutra, but Kama Sutra. When people hear, they think sex. That's not the true meaning of karma. It means sensual delight, which could include sexuality in the context of loving values. So karma is the second. First was dharma. The third is actually called Artha. Artha means money and wealth, because money is the way we exchange our values. In the book, Abundance, I help you do what is called a soul profile that tells you what your inner values are. And if you exchange values, that's called currency. And exchange in currency is what money is. So you can generate a lot of money if you know what your values are and engage with people that share similar values. The second mindset I would like to um, um, address is that, uh, you know, I heard a lyric a while ago from Bob Marley, who said some people are so poor, all they have is money. So ask yourself, will money buy me um, devotion, authentic devotion? Will money buy me peace? Will money buy me security? Will money buy me love and belongingness? Will money buy me creativity, insight, intuition, higher consciousness, and transcendence? And the answer is no. It might help, but you can't buy those things. So money is one component of abundance. True abundance, as I talk about in the book, is fulfillment at all
0: these levels. And in the book, I have a seven-step plan how you do that. You mentioned this idea about your soul profile. In the book, Abundance, you have an inventory, an interview, where you sit down and you ask us to listen to our true selves. I mean, this is a tough thing to do, right? Especially perhaps in America where it's go, 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 and we're very focused on on more, more, and more. Perhaps everyone's values have been a little bit reset, hopefully post-pandemic. With that carnage came some silver lining. What would you like for us to know about the importance between sitting down and really knowing who our true self is and how to uncover, how to read our own soul profile, as you call it. So on page 10 of the book is the soul profile. It's just
1: 10 simple questions with three words, three phrases for each question. At the end of it, you know who you are, not your bio. If you want to know your bio, you go to LinkedIn but if you want to know who you really are and your inner values, that's the sole profile in the book. And once you know your inner values, then you attract people in your ecosystem who have similar values, because that's how it is. Birds of a feather flock together. That's your ecosystem for success. And uh, uh, I like to say that uh, in general, in America at least, or in the world right now, we've sacrificed ourselves for our selfies, we confuse self-worth with net worth. But I found a lot of people with huge net worth have no self-worth.
0: Deepak, you've spent a large portion of your career, certainly the last 30, 40 years, in the public eye. You are a celebrity, whether you want to be or not. You're a renowned brand. You have, of course, met many famous people and worked with them and coached them and counseled them and probably agreed with them. What have you found are some of the commonalities of the people you would determine are the most successful in life. They know their mission, they have strong values, they are showing empathy, they're great leaders. What are the commonalities of what you think the most successful people share?
1: They have self-esteem, true self-esteem, and not self-image. There are two different things. Self-image is what other people think about you. And self-esteem uh, is knowing your true self. When you know your true self, you're fearless, number one. Number two, you feel beneath no one, but also feel beneath, uh, also feel superior to no one. And number three, you are a deep listener, you have presence. So if you're fearless, if you feel beneath no one, and you're independent of the good and bad opinions of the world, then that's a perfect recipe for success as a leader, and any other field.
0: You know, that reminds me of two phrases you mention in the book. You talk about the law of attraction with an A, and the law of intention with an I. Would you describe both of those in some detail, and why it's so important for us to be living in congruence with those?
1: So the law of attraction is not what it's usually portrayed as which is a mental thing you know be positive and everything else will happen Uh, being positive can be very stressful if you're not feeling positive it can exasperate others because they think you're pretending so it's not important to be positive mind but a quiet mind a quiet mind can wake up inner resources like intuition and creativity etc Intention coming from the ego is weak. You can achieve a lot by hard work, exacting plans and discipline, but by the time you do it, you have heart disease, rotten teeth, sexual impotence and drug addiction and probably a divorce. So, you know, intention has to come from your values, which is what the soul profile is.
0: Uh, Dr. Chopra, what will your legacy be when you leave this physical world 30 years from now? What will, your, what will your legacy be? Interesting person. He's gone, but the fragrance lingers. <laughs> Not what I expected. I'd like to, thank you for that. I'd like to uh, end with this thought. Uh, we've been a bit episodic in our conversation today, which I've enjoyed because this is one of those, what I call nugget interviews. Someone's going to take something different out of every insight that you've shared. You opened the book, Abundance, The Inner Path to Wealth explaining the concept of out there and in here. This is not a natural concept, I think, for most people to have a quiet mind and to think about. Would you explain the out there and in here concept and send us off with why that is so vital for all of us to understand that and stay present in that meaning? So that concept came to me from my
1: spiritual teacher uh, and used to phrase it as 200% of life. So outer means success as defined in the progressive realization of worthy goals, the ability to love and have compassion, but always being connected to your source, your creative source. Inner means actually um, finding peace beyond the mind. Uh, the The field of awareness, which is infinite possibilities and infinite creativity, Infinite potential, infinite love, infinite everything. For everything, every thought you have, infinite more available. Every imagination, infinite more prospects. Every idea, infinite more. You have infinite potential, don't compromise.
0: Deepak Chopra, I grew up watching you on television and Larry King live. As a young boy, you, your influence and impact has been generational. Your relevance, of course, is more so than ever, perhaps maybe the highest at its peak now, given everybody's uh, yearning post pandemic to understand what their purpose and what their mission is. Thank you for your selfless contribution to the world, to our listeners and viewers today. What's next for you, sir? Always
1: unpredictable. I'd like to surrender to the unknown because the known is the prison of past. It doesn't exist. So step into the unknown in every moment of life.
0: Deepak, send us off. Thank you. Send us off um, on the hopefully the end of this pandemic. Every day the news changes for what's happening in Europe or not in Europe or in China. What's your biggest lesson from like all of us having lived through and survived this pandemic, what's the biggest lesson that you've learned that's impacted you that you think everyone listening and watching today could also benefit from?
1: Well, we are at a fork in the road. One fork, uh, one road leads to possible human extinction and endless suffering if we continue the way we are. Um, Because right now we have ancient, medieval, tribal mindsets and modern capacities like Um, nuclear weapons, and biological warfare, and cyber warfare. The other leads to a more peaceful, just, sustainable, healthier, and joyful world. And all it needs is for each of us to be a change that we want to see in the world.
0: Deepak Chopra, what an honor to have you on Leadership Today. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Scott. 90-plus books. Your current book is abundance, the inner path to wealth. You rarely talk about wealth in the book because you're focused on all the things that can bring wealth to individuals. Thank you again for your time. Thank you for being our 200th guest on Leadership. Thank you, Scott. And we'll see you you, back here next week for the 201st interview with a new guest. Thank you for joining us. If you're not subscribing to the podcast, do so at all your favorite podcast platforms or at franklincovey.com. Thank you for your time.